Hey, good morning, C4. Really glad that you're here on this uh, awesome summer day. We want to say good morning to many of you watching and listening online. We want to say good morning to you at cottages, to you meeting in groups. And we also want to, again, we do this regularly, but we want to take a moment. Let's clap for all of those who are going to watch later who are serving our kids or young adults or our teens or our tweens right now. Let's just give them a, a thank you this morning so much. We just want to really thank you for serving. Uh, as Joanna said, uh, you know, this today, this conversation is going to be about prayer. We're in the middle of our summer series now called Spiritual Practices, and you could have a tagline for normal, everyday people. And this is quite the conversation we're having this summer. This is actually a very significant series in our opinion as the leadership of this church. And as we started this series a few weeks ago, remember what I said, this is like the twin sister series to the spiritual gift series. As we learned a few years ago, if spiritual gifts are the guaranteed place of power to serve, then spiritual practices or disciplines are the guaranteed place of transformation. It's two sides of one coin. One of the best definitions that uh, we've decided to use, written by another author, is this. The disciplines they write allow us to place ourselves before God himself so he, not us, so he can transform us. And so today we want to talk about prayer. We want to have a conversation. Now, most of us in this place, you online, whether you're in a plane or you're in the middle of a car listening to this or on the go train or, or it's you here today, most of us have prayed at least once in our life. Prayer is a natural rhythm for many of us who are Christians, and yet it is so familiar and yet so unfamiliar. So we've decided that we're going to take this week and next week to explore prayer as much as we can. A church that is praying is a transformational church. A church that is not praying dies. And this is critical to us being transformed by God and seeing our region transformed. As I was reading and preparing this week, I came across a very simple definition, and it's beautiful. Prayer is talking to God. It's communicating with God. That's all that prayer is. And yet, it was the late Dallas Willard who wrote these very damning words. He said, you know, the open secret in many now, in quotations, Bible-believing churches is that a vanishing small percentage of those talking about prayer and Bible reading are actually doing what they're talking about. Let me say that again. You see, the open secret in many churches that hold the scriptures high and say that we believe that this is God's word is this. Many of us talk the talk about prayer. Many of us talk the talk about reading the scriptures. But if we did an in-depth, genuine survey about where we are on the spiritual trajectory, we would find that a very small percentage of us really significantly pray regularly. And yet when we read the scriptures, we know that prayer is life-changing, it's exciting. It is a pray place of life. It can become a place of guidance, a place of supernatural power. It can become the place of healing. It is a declaration of fellowship that we truly know God and we're with each other. It can become a place of love, comfort, and hearing what God actually wants us to do. Now if we're really going to learn how to pray... If we truly want to encounter the one that is continually holy love, we must go to the most famous prayer that this week alone has been uttered by billions of people in hundreds of languages. Have you thought about that? We call it the Lord's Prayer. Hundreds of millions of people already this week have uttered this in hundreds of languages. Now there are two 
different versions of the Lord's Prayer. And yet what's so amazing in these very few small lines, this very small prayer, you have such profound upward and inward change. The rhythms of grace are all contained in a condensed form within this prayer that's very familiar to some of you, and some of you, you do not know it. Now, like I said, there's two versions. There's one in Luke and one in Matthew. We're going to go to the one in Matthew. So if you've got your Bible this morning, please physically or virtually navigate open to Matthew chapter 6. Now, some of you are going, I know this by heart. I don't need to open my Bible. Yes, you do. Open your Bible, please, to Matthew 6. Now, this is a really significant, this is the prayer out of all prayers And the Luke account, you don't need to turn there, in Luke 11, actually gives the great context of how this prayer came about. In Luke 11, 1, it says this, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, I just want you to see this. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples turns to him and says, Teach us to do what we just saw you do. Remember that the spiritual practices is becoming like Christ because as we learned in week one, we are only imitating the one who's actually our model. Jesus is not just Savior and Lord. He is our model of how to walk with the Father. Jesus always demonstrated and then invited people to do the same thing. That's what's so revolutionary about Jesus. It is not just for the sages and the brilliant. He turns around and says, sure, I'll teach you to pray. And so as he's demonstrating this profound moment between him and the Father, one of his disciples says, would you teach us to pray? And at that moment, have you considered it? Think about it. Just sit in the moment historically. At that moment, under the power of God's Holy Spirit, Jesus utters the Lord's Prayer for the first time. Jesus simply outlines the heartbeat of what prayer is, and he invites, are you ready? He invites broken, sinful, distracted, questioning, and yet at the same time faithful people into the relationship that he himself shares with God the Father. Jesus heard their request, and he answered with crystal clear clarity. And this is what he said in Matthew 6, 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And if you're reading the King James, it says what? For thine is the power and the glory and the honor forever and ever. Amen. Jesus at that moment says, and this is how you should pray. Have you ever stopped and just thought about that? Jesus, I want you to teach me how to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. This isn't Shakespeare saying this. This is God in flesh. So we should maybe pay attention. He could have taught us a billion different ways to pray, but he says, this is it. And look how he begins. Our what? Our Father. Do you know if you read the book of Matthew, Jesus says that God is his father 14 times. God, Jesus says 14 times to all sorts of different people, he is my father. And yet now he is inviting us to say the same. We are invited, let me say this again, into the same relationship that Jesus had with the father. Our. We say that word so quickly when we read this or repeat this or say this, but we need to stop. 
our Father, means that there is relationship already. This prayer is for those who are in relationship with God the Father already. This is not said by those who actually do not know God. This is not about just saying some rote prayer. See, you need to understand, our Father means you're already in relationship with God, so you get to call him Father. Now the question is, how do you gain relationship? How do you move from God being Father in the general sense to our Father? Oh yes, God has created every human being, and we are all his children in one sense. But specifically, you don't get to call God Father unless you have relationship with him. How does that happen? By accepting the one teaching you how to pray. Only those that have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord know God truly as Father, since he's the only one that can show us the Father fully, make us right before God the Father fully, and keep us in God's presence continually without dying. Have you thought about that? It's why he said in the book of John, John 14, 6, and Jesus answered, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the what? Say it. Father. Except through me. You can never call God Father if you have not met his son Jesus. Lots of people say they call him Father, but they do not know him relationally as Father, even though they think they do because they have not said yes to Jesus, God's one and only Son. Paul says in Colossians 1, if you want to know who God is, you must look fully into the face of Jesus Christ, for he is the full revelation of the Father. Our Father. That second word reminds us right up front who God really is. God at his core is a relational God. Our God is an involved God. And he is called Father. As I've preached before in this church, Father actually is a name. It's like Yahweh or Elohim or or, or Jesus. It expresses a part of God. Now for many of you here and many of you online this morning, when I utter this, this is unbelievably difficult for you. Because our dads were all broken at different levels and some of our dads weren't even there. And many of our dads weren't dads at all. And some of our dads really hurt us. And the, 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 the truth is it's real. The pain is honest and the damage is still there. And it may take years to work through, but let me say this morning, this name is so unbelievably important and must not be changed or tampered with because God wants to introduce us to what fatherhood is supposed to look like. It was one scholar that wrote that the Hebrew scriptures normally depict God not as the father of an individual, of you, but of the father of his people, Israel. Pious Jew in Jesus' days and other generations, aware of the gap between a holy God and sinful human beings, would never, ever dare address God as Abba, the Aramaic word for daddy, which actually came to be called dear father. When Jesus was sitting and saying this for the first time, you need to understand the power and the revelation and the revolution of this because Jesus shocked so many of both the religious scholars of the day and also everyday normal people when he started saying that God was his Abba. And then he turned around and said, if you follow me, you can God call God of heaven and earth Abba too. Rather depicting, he writes, God is a typical Middle Eastern patriarch who wields considerable power within the family. He depicts God primarily as a tender and a compassionate father who extends grace, interestingly, both to sinners and to self-righteous. God is father. God is personal. God is tender. God is grace. 
Now, if you've done church for a while, you know that the most powerful jaw-dropping experience outlined by Jesus of this depiction of the true living God is found in the book of Luke when Jesus was telling a story called the prodigal son. Do you remember the story where this young 20-something or young teenager walks up to his dad and says to his dad, I don't like you. Actually, I hate you. I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance, you old man. The father's heart is so broken, and yet he obeys and does it. If you read what Jesus says as he's outlining this story, it says that this young man full of life and vigor and vitality went off to a foreign land. And what did he do? It says in the scriptures, he had a wild life. What does that mean? He had sex with friends and prostitutes and everything in between. He got drunk and had a blast. It was Vegas on steroids, and he didn't care. He lived all that life and his friends were his friends and suddenly all the inheritance ran out because, you know, parting is expensive. Some of you know that. And suddenly he had no friends left because he used all his money. And amazingly, at that moment, it says that a famine struck the land. And now he's away from his dad. He's away from everything. He's lost everything. And as a young Jewish man, he's now sitting among pigs, which is the most detestable thing that can happen to a Jew. And he's not even really allowed to eat what the pigs are eating. And it actually says in the scriptures that he was starving to death. He went from the penthouse to the pigs. And it says in the book of Luke, verse 15, chapter 15, that brought him to his senses. <laughs> you think? He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down three meals a day and here I am starving to death. So I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say to him, father... I've sinned against God and I've sinned before you and I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. And he got right up and he went home to his father. And well, he was still a long way off. His father saw him and his heart was pounding and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him and the son started the speech. Father, father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you and I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father was not listening He was calling his servants, quick, quick, you, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring back on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Get the best grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, now alive, given up for lost. He is now found. Now, if you read the story, this is trying to outline. Jesus is trying to express who God is. And the father in the story is God. And the prodigal son, well, it's basically all of us. And what's so absolutely missing when you read this in English without the original context is this. You see, you've got to understand the power. When a young man put his middle finger in his father's face and took off, He didn't just insult the family. He insulted the whole community he belonged to. And so when this son comes back, scholars tell us that the whole community had a duty to stop him before he even got to the father, beat him up, and kick him out. You are a disgrace to the whole town. What does the father do? The father does something that Middle Eastern men still to this day do not do. He picked up his long robes and he ran. Exposing your legs in that culture as a man is utter humiliation. Why did he do it? A, he was excited, but it's deeper than that. See, he would have seen that the whole community was coming to deal with his son. So he humiliates himself by running to get his son. And people are in such shock that this man of great wealth and stature would do this. They don't move and he embraces his son and protects him. God 
is that type of father. God runs and God moves and God guards and God forgives and God welcomes. This is the fatherhood that has to be recovered in our culture. And it will only be found in God himself. Our father, our Abba, our dad. Now we've learned that God's love is unconditional. That is, it is open to all. But it is conditional if we only meet the one who he has sent. Our Father, who is where? What does the scripture say? In heaven. Immediately after those words, we're reminded where he is. When we pray, we draw near to God himself and enter the place where angels fear to tread. Don't you know that every time you pray, just like we just did, because of Jesus, we enter into the most holy place? The book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, every time you pray, you walk right into the place where angels are deeply concerned. When I was preaching on worship this year, remember I reminded us as a church of what the holy place looks like. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, When they had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before Jesus the Lamb. And each one of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Verse 11, And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb, that is Jesus, who is slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. See, understand this. Get this in your mind, church. Every time we gather here on a Sunday, every time you're doing your devotions, Every time we as Christians pray, personally, in a small group or a large group, that is the reality that we are ushered into. This is not metaphor. This is not poetic license. When we pray, we enter right into God's very holy presence with all the angels and all who have already died and that are with Jesus. And we enter in the place, in the very place that if Jesus had not covered us, we would be struck dead. This is the great responsibility and gift we take for granted when you're blessing your swishelay in an hour and a half or you're crying out to God because of sickness. When you pray, you have access to God himself. Our Father who is in heaven. So of course Jesus teaches us to pray this next phrase. Of course he does, because we are in the environment of environments, the atmosphere of holy atmospheres. Hallowed, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Let your name be made holy with all the angels and all that are now in your full palpable presence. We cry out, you, 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 never us, never us. Did you catch it? This small prayer already in two and a half sentences Starts with imminence. Right after we're brought so close. Knowing that God is for us and with us. And he's Abba and he's dad. We are then ripped away and thrown into transcendence. Back into the grandeur of God. It's like moving from a small group. And then worshiping God in a cathedral. There. In the small, in the large, we begin to realize in our prayer life. There is only one who deserves to be lifted up. 
This prayer reminds us in our world that we are not God. We are not made to be God. This is an absolute rejection of the lie that Satan said in the garden to Adam and Eve that you can be and should be God. There is no one greater than him. Real prayer, Christian prayer, is an act of saying with joy and gratitude and hope, I am not God, I don't need to be God. God, you deserve my respect. I'm willing to give up everything, my love to you, my adoration, I'm devoted to you. No one else, nothing else is more important than, than you in my life. You deserve such worship. I agree with what you've said throughout the generations. It's like in Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, I will not yield my glory to another. And that's when we say, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Now, it's in that atmosphere. It's in that space and place, in that moment where we are in the place of God's holy, majestic presence. That Jesus says, if you want to pray for real, here's what you ask that uncreated one to do. Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the kingdom of God? If you're going to know Jesus, you need to know about kingdom because kingdom's at the center of his theology. The kingdom is not the Jews. The kingdom is not the nation of Israel. The kingdom, oh, by the way, is not the church. It's not, never has been. The kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and kingly rule of God is welcomed and accepted. When you became a Christian, you became a member of the kingdom of God because you accepted Jesus as Savior and what? Lord. You said, I want the kingly rule of God in my heart. We know that what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth will be the ultimate expression of the kingdom of God because nature and creation and humanity will be back in perfect balance and order. Why? Because the kingly rule of God will be welcomed and accepted forever and ever. Can't you wait for that day? It's going to be great. But we are praying at this moment, oh, that your kingdom would come. I want more of that stuff, more of him. I want your will to be done You know, when you pray this prayer, you know what you're declaring, right? (laughs) You're asking that you would not lead your life. You're saying in this prayer, I don't want to lead my life. I want you to be in charge. I'm laying down everything to Jesus who gives me access to the Father. You're basically saying, I am a willing slave. As Jesus perfectly obeyed the Father, I want to perfectly obey Jesus. Is that what you think when you pray this? It's what Paul wrote in Romans 6.22. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to God, the benefit we reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Let me preach what I've preached before. Christian, if you are one here today, you hear this, you accept this, you embrace this, you run towards this. You are a slave to Jesus who gives you access to the Father. You are not your own. You've been bought with a high price. Obedience is the key to liberation. True freedom always comes from biblical slavery. When we live our lives with this one all-consuming perspective, I am a slave to Jesus. If you live with this, there will be freedom. But if you do not live with this one consuming view of both God's Abba love for you and also his total ownership of you, you will live an unradical, unauthentic, powerless Christian life. You will begin to live a cheap version of our faith that will never change Durham, let alone the world. What is the core verse of this whole series? 
Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus has come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let me do this again. Does anyone in this place need rest for their souls? Raise your hand. Yeah. He says, if you want it, here's the promise. Take my yoke upon you, and you learn from me. Because I am, Jesus saying, gentle and humble in heart. You will, guaranteed, find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. But here again, let me re-say this. Understand this. When you take on Jesus, you take on his yoke. What's a yoke? It's what's put on animals to guide them as they're plowing. And Jesus is saying, why do you want to follow me? Let me tell you why. Here's my job, my job background. Don't you know I'm gentle? Don't you know I'm humble? I'm going to be such a better master because you're never gentle towards yourself, let alone others. And humble, man, you people miss it all the time. It's not about you, side note. He says, this is who I am. And when you pray, oh God, I want your kingdom to come and your will be done. Here's what you are asking God to do in you, in your family, in this region, in this church. I want your will in, your, in my thinking. I want the Bible to have more authority than what I feel or want today. I want your will in my money. I want your will over my sexuality, no matter which way it goes. I want your will in my relationships. I want your will in my family, in this church, in my future. I want your will, not my dreams. I don't own my house. I don't own my life. I don't own my savings. I don't own my family. I don't own my dreams. I don't have wants anymore. I I have to give them all back to you. God, you are such a better master than me. Let your will be done on earth as it's already working right up in heaven. Bring that down quick because I'm messing everything up. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are asking for nothing less than revolution and renovation at the core of your identity. That's why the very next thing Jesus says is, oh, and ask him for daily bread now. Because when you understand the implication of the invitation, suddenly you're going, oh, I need oxygen, oxygen, something help me. And he's like, no problem, ask for daily bread, it's going to be good. Okay. Daily bread. He says, look, you've got to actually go before the one who has all in his hands and ask for physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. This, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament when Israel was wandering for 40 years as a nation. They had no food or access to water. 1.1 to 1.3 million people. Just imagine the latrine system they had built, like wild. And God provided something called manna, where every single day, God would give bread from heaven. Every day for 1.3 million people was a miracle. And right when Jesus talks about daily bread, he knew exactly what he was saying. He said, and remember in Deuteronomy 8.2, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way through the wilderness these 40 years to be humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. See, we go, I need daily bread. I'm going to Sobeys. Right? What do you mean I need to pray for daily bread? I've got Loblaws and I've got a credit card. No. This is a humbling act where we begin to understand that we are the ones who actually still need. 
Of course, in Jesus' day, there was no such thing as unions. There was no such thing as lawyers as we know them today or laws. And so you were paid daily and you could be fired at any time. Every day was a miracle. And this is what you're praying. God, I need your manna. God, I ask you for my basic needs, clothing, shelter, life issues, godliness, what I'm facing today, I want to talk to you. But it's so interesting, did you catch it? This prayer, again, confronts the idea that you're the master of your own destiny, that you can deal with your life and your family or church or job without God's influence. This prayer is a radical move from self-trust and self-sufficiency to trusting on God for utter dependence, for salvation, life, godliness, no matter what you're facing, good, bad, or neutral. And you see that word today, daily bread? This is a moment where in our culture, Jesus comes so close and goes, stop. Because what you're really acknowledging at this moment is, oh God, would your will be done just today? And would you provide for what I need today? I'm not gonna live my history all today and I'm not gonna deal with my whole future today. Just today, daily bread. Jesus knew way before psychologists did any major studies how little we can really handle. Amen. And he says, slow down. Listen. Daily bread is for today. I'm going to give you manna tomorrow morning. Her father, who's in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. This would be the moment where Jesus gets uncomfortably close with all of us. If he was sitting in a Starbucks with us today, he'd sit down and he'd move your Oprah latte to the side. And he'd say, um, he said, you really want to pray? Oh, Lord, I want to pray. Are you sure? Yeah, okay, just hold on. Can you just look at me in the eyes? Uh, I, I find that uncomfortable. I know you're Canadian. Look me in the eyes anyway. Uh, Jesus would look us in the eyes because, of course, you know, the eyes are the window of the soul. They really are. And he would look at us. He'd say, you know, no one comes into my Father's presence without dealing with sin, right? Like, you don't get to play this game. When holiness shows up, all sin is exposed. Every single time you pray, you're going to have to have a conversation about debts. You're going to have to, and... Well, we all know it, right? Our lives are marked by transgression and debt and trespass, iniquity. All of us have missed the mark, slipped, fallen away. All of us fallen aside, thoughts, words, and deeds. We regularly violate God's will and law. You think about it. We trespass. We go to places we're not allowed to go. We say regularly to God, I don't care what this old book says. We know better now. We have debts we can't even think about. I love when one person wrote, sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God just out of the picture. But this prayer invites us as a church to practice the other spiritual discipline we've already talked about, confession. Remember, since we've met Jesus, we need to keep walking in our freedom. We need to keep walking in transparency. We don't need to hide from God anymore because we're under Jesus' work. We don't need to hide from each other anymore because because we actually are under Jesus' work. And so this is where confession comes in. See, this is a guaranteed place of transformation. Why? Because confession continually confronts our desire to hide and to be fearful and to believe that we're still owned by guilt and continues to let us walk unfairly fettered with God the Father like Jesus did. Remember the definition we found from another? Confession is sharing our deepest weaknesses and failures with God and trusted others so we may enter into God's grace and mercy and experience his ready forgiveness and healing. 
Every single time you pray, God invites you and invites myself to get serious about sin and confessing our sin and not doing it in generality, but doing it in specifics. Why? Because God wants your freedom. This is not, like I've said a hundred times, about humiliation. This is about humility. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God, every day, knowing how warped we are, invites us back, just like the father invites the prodigal back, every day and says, let's talk and let's hear what's going on and let me cover it again. As he's sitting there in that Starbucks with you, this is actually the most painful moment because then he would say, um, by the way, uh, you know it's not just you and me, right? It's not just that. See, there's this thing called relationships. And um, if you're a part of my kingdom and you're becoming more like me because you've already prayed for my kingdom to come and my will to be done, right? You want that. You've asked for that. Okay, uh, just to tell you, as I've just forgiven you, uh, now you need to now go actually forgive people that actually owe you big time. Uh, forgive me my debts as I have already forgiven those who have debts. Uh, lead me, right? Jesus says there is no way that you actually can have a conversation at all about genuine prayer unless you're willing to forgive other people. As God has just done it when you ask for it. See, God's forgiveness, everyone listen, if you're disconnecting, look up for a moment, put your phones down. If God has forgiven you, which he always does first, only after his forgiveness is experienced does he invite you through his power to do the same. Is forgiveness a process? Oh, you betcha it is. But this is a call for you to say to Jesus, I am willing to begin it. This prayer continues to move us to see what we've actually done against ourselves and others and also really quickly exposes our inability and our lack and our want, lack of want to forgive. And yet God wants your joy and your freedom so much he invites us through his power to forgive others because remember, everyone listen, I don't care how old you are, unforgiveness is a cage that will kill you. Forgiveness is not forgetting, and forgiveness is not a lack of justice. Oh, make no mistake, every human being is going to face God. There is not a secret that has happened in a government. There is not a secret that has happened in your family that will not be talked about by God. Isn't that reassuring? No one gets past God. This is not about injustice. Because either it will be dealt with here or dealt with there or it's already on the body of Jesus and been forgiven. But Jesus says to us, you listen, he says so closely, don't you understand that the most powerful, powerful act of my kingdom is the cross which I demonstrated forgiveness. Is forgiveness difficult? Horrifically difficult. Is it a choice? Yes, it's actually a crisis of the will. It is giving up your right. It is giving God the glock and saying, I will not hurt them anymore. They're in your hands. Forgiveness, as Pastor Gary says, is assuming personal responsibility for the emotional pain and consequences of another person's sin towards you. It's not natural. Will it take time? Yes, it could take years. But must we as Christians be willing? Yes, because forgiveness is the radical reflection of God's love that we've experienced. God says the most powerful expression of the kingdom of God is forgiveness and an unforgiving world. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now the past is dealt with and the present's being dealt with. Then Jesus says, let's talk about the future just for a moment. Lead us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. It's interesting if you read the Bible in the original language, the word temptation and the word trespass, I'm sorry, temptation and testing is the exact same word. It's an interesting thing because we know that God tested Abraham, tested Israel, tested Job. It says in the book of James, testing will lead to good things in your life. And yet, of course, we would never say that God is leading us into sin. I mean, even James says this in James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is, is tempting me. God, God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So what's going on here? Well, he's talking about temptation from sin. And as I've really wrestled with this, because many of you for years who've been Christians have prayed this, but never been able to understand what God is inviting you to pray, I found this this week, and I think it's really great. You ready? Here's what one person wrote. He said, this petition indicates that followers of Jesus should either pray for relief from testing, or, here's the moment, here's the aha, or during testing, we would not be tempted. You see, Jews in the morning and the evening used to pray a prayer like this. Bring me, out, bring me not into the power of sin. Bring me not into the power of guilt. Bring me not into the power of temptation. And bring me not into the power of anything shameful. This is when you go before God and say, if I'm going to be tested by you or my life or the evil one even, when I'm being tested, do not let me be tempted. Have mercy. And it's interesting where Jesus ends this prayer, right? He ends in hell, not heaven. He starts with purity and ends with unrighteousness. He starts with beauty and ends with wickedness. He says, deliver us from the evil one. Lord, save me from the enemy of my soul. What did we learn in the book of Ephesians 6.12? Our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil hates you. Whether you believe in him or not doesn't matter. He still exists. Every fallen angel hates you. You're made in the image of God and they hate him. And you who are Christians here this morning, he hates you even more because you're filled with Jesus who made mockery of him and stripped him at the cross. Every single time a demon passes you in Pickering Town Center or wherever you're walking, they see the one who is in you and they hate him with something I can't even describe. They hate this church. They hate every church. They hate the Bible. They hate everything that's godly. See, spiritual warfare happens every time the kingdom of God is brought on earth. And don't you understand this? Do you get this? Do you feel this? When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're invoking the kingdom of God, which is an act of war. Because we're replacing their kingdom. And so this, Jesus says, uh, you need to understand that if you're going to pray, you need to end by saying, Oh God, would you spare us from the evil one because he is the one who will destroy you and destroy this church because he knows every local church is the hope of the world and they're the only ones who have the message to actually introduce people to Abba Father. And so they will do everything. They will ask you to doubt God's goodness. They will accuse you of your sin. They will say, look at your struggles. They will bring up past history. They will bring up present things. They'll say, Jesus doesn't love you. He never has, and why would he? Look at your freaking life. You're garbage, you're nothing. They'll come close and they'll attack your identity. They'll infer, they'll whisper, they'll use even Christians or non-Christians to say, you're no saint, are you joking me? 
You don't have grace. You don't have peace. You're not included in Jesus. That stuff John preached in Ephesians, you're not blessed in the heavenly realms with spiritual blessings in Jesus. You're not seated with him. You're not chosen. You're not called. You're not foreknown. You're not adopted. You're a son and daughter of God. Are you joking me? Look at your life. Look at what you look at. Look at what you struggle with. You don't have redemption or forgiveness. You're not sealed by God's spirit. You don't have eternal security, and you're definitely not God's possession. You must be spiritually dead, actually just given to sin. You know what? Because it's just easier. Jesus isn't stronger than us. You need us to guard you, not him. When did he show up? We're here for you now. They'll say you're not saved by grace alone. Don't you know that God's only going to love you if you work harder, and if you're really religious, maybe he'll look at you? Or to other people, he'll say in this crowd, oh, don't you know how amazing you are? So amazing. You don't need the Bible or God or church. You're just so awesome. You go live your life. This is the reality. They will promote in our thoughts and in our church bitterness, rage, anger, malice, unforgiveness. They will justify sexual immorality. They'll say terrible speech is great. Lying is fantastic. Gossip is worth it. And stealing's just okay because you deserve something better. They'll continually remind you of what everyone else has and what you don't have. They'll put crazy thoughts in your mind and they'll say, well, you obviously must be that thing because you thought about it, so just give in and then you'll cross a line you never thought you would. See, Jesus ends his prayer saying, oh God, oh God, oh God, deliver me from this because if you don't show up, I am done. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me end with these thoughts and then we're going to respond in worship. Two things. Here's the first thing. How do you use the Lord's Prayer? We're going to spend a lot of time next week talking about different styles of prayer, but let me just say this is how I use it almost every day. I read it line by line and I stop and then I pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then I'll just start worshiping God. Thank you that you're sovereign. Thanks that you're trustworthy. Thanks that you're a promise-keeping God. Thanks that you're a God, good Father. Thank you that you never leave me. Thank you that you're providential. Thank, thank you that I can trust you because actually there's no wickedness in you. Thank you you're not one of me, and thank you you're not the devil. Like, you can spend a while there. And I take every single line, and I go through it. One of the most important prayers I pray as a leader, as a husband, as a father, and just a guy is this. When I pray about temptation, just for you who are leaders, here's what I pray. Oh God, you spare me from things that are actually too good for me right now. Oh God, if my character is not ready, you limit my influence. See, we always think temptation is a negative thing. Sometimes it could be a very positive thing. It could even be a God-given thing. But I say to God all the time, oh God, because your name is worth hallowing, because my wife and children deserve honor, because I am a representative of Christ leading this church and in the community, oh God, you stop, you literally stop anything that would come my way that I cannot handle, including very good things, because my character needs to be ready to handle the load of influence. And man, do I pray that God would deliver us from the evil one Because let me tell you, there is one thing he wants, and it is the destruction of this church and every other church in this region because we are the ones who represent hope and eternal life. Let me end where I started. Do you remember? What do spiritual practices do? Spiritual practices take normal, everyday people like us and place us in the presence of God. And what's the word? To be what? Say it loud. Anyone remember? transformed. Have you looked up the word transformed? 
Transform means alteration, change, revolution, renovation, makeover, and conversion. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, you are asking for nothing less than you being changed at the core of who you are. This is not a prayer for people who want to play games with God. This is a prayer that changes the whole game. Everyone ready? This prayer deals with pride. This prayer deals with idolatry. This prayer deals with forgiveness. This prayer deals with pain. This prayer deals with all hiddenness, all secrets, and all hard-heartedness. This prayer deals with incarnate evil, and this prayer will expose you, and this prayer will actually heal you, and this prayer forces you into the light, and this prayer reminds you you are never God, nor, you can, nor can any of us handle his glory. This prayer invites and commands you to be a slave to God and give up all your rights. This prayer confronts and comforts and says he will provide your needs. This prayer frees you from your past and the going on sins of others. This prayer outlines what reality is. There is a God, there is a Satan, this world is as it is. This prayer is a plea for the not yet to come into the now. And this prayer, everyone ready? This prayer is a guaranteed place of transformation. For when you pray this, everyone ready? God will answer it because he wrote it. just want to say this again. Everyone, hold on. Some, look, look, everyone. He will answer this one because this is how we should pray. Some of you are so unbelievably upset at God because of what's going on in your life, and all he's saying to you is, but I'm just answering your prayer. This is a guaranteed place of transformation. This is an invitation to relationship, freedom, joy, faithfulness, worship, seeing heaven come into you, your family, into this church, into this region. This prayer is the heartbeat of everything we are as Christians. So would you stand as we prepare to respond in song, And would you, if you can, say it with me. Because this is how the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, taught his followers, which include us, to pray. Maybe you've said this a hundred times but never thought what you were asking for. But this is a moment of beauty because remember, this is relational God, our daddy, Abba, invites us to know him, invites us to worship him, invites us to be reliant on him and not on us, invites us to be forgiven and to forgive others, invites us to stop temptation at the door before it consumes us, and invites us to be free from unholiness at its deepest root. There is no other prayer like this in any other faith, not like this. Would you pray it? We'll do trespasses because many of you know it that way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's give him a hand. He's a good, fantastic God.